This is Chapter 56 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we'll hear from a doctor of physics turned investment banker turned writer whose debut suspense novel is all about buried secrets and the darker side of friendship. Then we'll preview a thriller that will make you doubt your good intentions. This winter has been a bear. And if you're like me, you're probably dreaming of that first nice warm day when you can sit outside and get lost in a good book. When that day comes, and I hope it's soon, may I suggest The French Girl by Lexi Elliott. Let's call it our first unofficial summer beach read. In it, a fun-filled summer getaway for six college friends takes a dark turn when a young woman mysteriously disappears. And as you might guess, she's been murdered. But who did it? Well, you know, I won't tell, but we did ask Lexi all about her debut when she visited our studios last week. So The French Girl is um, a novel really about friendships and and memory. Um, And the probably the pivotal incident is that um, uh, a girl goes missing when some friends are on holiday in a farmhouse in France just at the end of university. And... Ten years later, um, her body turns up um, in the well of the farmhouse that they were staying at. So um, Kate, the protagonist, has to try and delve into her memories and understand what really happened um, and at the same time deal with the fact that ten years after an event, your memory is not perfect. Uh, People change, people move on, you start to look at things in different light. Um, And really that kind of dynamic was something I was interested in, in exploring. I'm sure you've been asked this hundreds of times, but how much of the story, its characters, its setting is borrowed from your real life? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, Kate is very much not me. Um, she's very different. She's she's much braver for a start. Um, I would say that a lot of the settings are things that I'm very familiar with. For example, the uh, group of friends all went to Oxford University, as I did. Um, I did go on holiday to a farmhouse in France at the end of, well, actually, while I was doing my PhD, I went on holiday there. Nobody died, thankfully. Um, uh, But, you know, that kind of setting, I'm I'm able to write um, with a good deal of familiarity. Also, where... um, Kate lives, where she works in London, the sort of places that she goes out. She's a, she's a young woman in her 30s, and that's exactly the kind of experience that I had living and working in London. You mentioned your PhD. It's in theoretical physics, right? Indeed. <laughs> How did you end up writing a murder mystery? Yeah, I always wanted to write. I mean, even from uh, as soon as I can remember, in fact, um, I wanted to write, and I would take little pieces I'd written to my teacher when I was, you know, six, seven years old. Um, and I had a choice to make at one point, which was whether to, to follow physics and maths, um, or whether to do English. And I felt like I couldn't really follow an interest in physics in my spare time. You know, it's just, it, it involves so much, um, dedicated learning and, and specifically technical learning. Um, so I, I went down that route and, you know, literature and a love of reading and a love of writing was something I did in my spare time. Um, But I always thought there'd be a time in my life that I would, you know, suddenly think, oh, now is the time I can write. And turns out that's not how it works at all. You just have to do it anyway, because, you know, life is busy and you you have a job and you have 
a family if you're lucky enough to have a family and you, I had kids and so <laughs> there was never going to be a perfect time I just had to you know make sure I dedicated myself to it more. It's so funny to listen to you talk about physics in your spare time because as a total <laughs> not math person I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> well I don't either because you like I say it's so technical even you know just being away from for a summer between the end of school and going to university I suddenly thought oh my god I've forgotten half of this. Um but, you know, I, I I have a very technical side to me and the job that I do in the city in London for um, the fund manager I work for is a very technical one. I do a lot of the financial modelling. I do a lot of the blue sky thinking around how we would best structure things. And I really enjoy that side of things. So I think... I think you don't have to be one thing. You can be a combination of things. And, I, it, you know, as we move forward and as we have more opening for women in all different um, areas, I think that we should we should keep our horizons wide. I'm going to get back to your book. And is it Severine? Is that how you? Severine, yes. Severine. So she's the French girl of the title for people who don't know. Did you plan from the beginning to write her the way you did? Because it's really a really interesting take. I didn't at all, actually. I mean, she's, I don't think it's a spoiler to say she's dead by page two. So, <laughs> you know, um, I intended her just to be the, you know, the dead French girl. And she wasn't very happy with that and kept showing up. And suddenly I, I she, she wrote her own part. Um, and she lived and breathed for me as much as all the other characters. And I, I had to go with that. And I was completely surprised by that. And I, I've written things before where characters have, you know, just started to take on their own life and push things in a way I hadn't expected. Um, but I don't think anyone's done that so strongly as Severine did. It, it was really like a Hamlet-like quality to it with, you know, she's talking to a pile of bones or it's the ghost that follows her around. It's, it, I guess it's a, something that works in literature and as always. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that... Um, I think that memories affect different people in different ways and um, and we project our own feelings in different ways. Um, you know, for some people it can be very visual, for some people it can be they, they hear a piece of music and it makes them think of things. And um, I think that uh, that element, as you say, the Hamlet type quality is something that obviously playwrights have been picking up for forever. <laughs> um, I didn't think of it that way when I was writing it, um, but there's something uh, there's something very elemental about bones, you know, the, what's underneath the skin and and what they mean and and what what it makes you think when you're confronted simply with the stark white skull as opposed to the this this flesh and the muscle on top of that. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing some digging before this interview, I also found an interesting little tidbit that you realized after you had written the book that she's named after somebody in particular. <laughs> yeah, um, my husband, it took a really long time to read the book. He uh, he did read it before it was published, but <laughs> it took a really long time. Um, but he picked it up at one point and said, um, Severine, really? How do you come up with that name? And at that point, I twigged that that was the name of his first proper girlfriend, <laughs> um, who, you know, in my head actually was this this very um, 
attractive French girl with, you know, um, the sort of person that could definitely inspire jealousy and I'd killed her off by page two. So I'm sure there's something very <laughs> Freudian about that. I think you've done something a lot of ex-girlfriends would like to do. <laughs> In a safe environment. <laughs> yes. So what are you working on next? Uh, I'm writing uh, my next novel, which is actually going to be set in Scotland, where I grew up. Um, and it's been very interesting to me to see how the language and the landscape um, permeates that, um, hoping that that will be released in 2019. Is it another suspense novel or something different? Yeah, it's uh, it, more mystery, perhaps. Um, mystery and suspense mix, I would say. Um, and... Yeah, it's uh, it's taking up all my time at the moment. <laughs> now, are you still writing and working at the same time? You're, you're doing all the juggling still, right? I am doing all the juggling still, um, which you know has its has its moments. Um, I a lot of people ask me why I don't um, quit the city job and and focus on the writing, but actually, I think from the the kind of health and well-being aspect it's very good for me to have a place where I go three days a week and and see people who I've known for a very long time and I'm very loyal to so there's this social aspect there um I really enjoy it I like um as I said before I like the fact that you don't have to be one thing or another thing you can choose to be many things to many people um and I also think that the brain takes over when you're not actually writing and it means that when I come back to writing I have something to say well, thank you for coming in this morning, Lexi. The book is The French Girl. And I look forward to what you're working on next. Thank you very much for having me. We talk a lot about thrillers on this podcast. Can't get enough of them, actually. But we've never featured one like Waking Lions by Aliet Gundar Goshen. The book is set in the Israeli desert town of Beersheba, and its larger themes are universal and at times uncomfortable. She tells me the novel was based on the true story of an Israeli backpacker who left a beggar for dead after striking him while driving in the Himalayas. And when I heard the story, I was fascinated by the question, would he be capable of leaving an Israeli girl there? Or is it easier uh, for an Israeli middle-class guy to, to leave behind somebody that looks different? And then I thought, I don't want to write a story about the Himalayas. I want to write about my own country, about Israel. And I want this car accident between the white man driving the car and a, a person from a third world country walking barefoot would be, in a way, a metaphor to what's going on right now in the Israeli society. And really, even though you wrote a book about Israel, it really transcends because you could really take your story and put it in any country, whether it's the U.S. or any European country anywhere. I think if we look at, at the current situation today with refugees, this is a, a world wide phenomenon and it comes back to the most basic question of what does it mean to be human? What is our moral responsibility towards other people, people who may not look like us, who don't share the same uh, the same race or the same nationality, maybe they don't speak the same language. But I agree with you, Waking Lines is a very Israeli story, but in a way it's also a very universal story. It's a story about people who have and people who have nothing and, and the clash between them. And while we may have these differences, you do hit upon things that, that these people do the same. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is you spend a lot of time on routine and the comfort of routine and the comfort that your characters find in, in it. And that applies to whether it's Itan or Liat or Sir Kit. Um, I, I very much agree with you. I find routine 
fascinating in their boringness. I mean, this is something so boring, having a daily routine. But then again, there's something so interesting about how these boring routines define us and in a way keep us in order, keep us in place, keep a sense of something logical in our life and, and like prevent us from realizing the, the real chaos. And I know that my own grandmother, when she she heard that my uncle, he, he was killed, and when she heard that he was killed, the first thing she started to do was to clean up his room. And I, I remember this story training the family about her cleaning the room as if nothing bad can happen when the room is, is completely clean. As an author, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the idea that we're trying to use our routines as a sort of a barrier between us and the external world. And there's this, also this idea that we lie to those who we love and we lie to those people in our lives and this misguided belief that by doing so, we're protecting them. I think it's, it's interesting to ask how much truth can one relationship bear before it po- falls apart? Because people love each other, it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to know each other. I think sometimes people choose to be blind to certain elements or facts or truths about their beloved ones in order to keep on loving them. So the wife of the, the Israeli doctor who accidentally hits an Eritrean refugee, she's a police detective and she's, uh, she's investigating the case. And then you ask yourself, does she really want to solve this case? Does this woman really want to know what her partner is capable of doing? And I want to talk about eyes, because eyes are, it's, whether it's what the characters see through their own or what their own reveal to others, it really plays a large role in this book, so much so that you even have a pair of eyes on the cover of your book. They really, in your hand, become the window to the soul. Was this your intention? I like to think about how much do eyes reveal and how much do they conceal at the same time about choosing to be blind to certain elements that is choosing not to see. For instance, in Israel, we choose to to avoid looking at or seeing or, or facing those people coming from Eritrea, those refugees. We don't talk about them. You don't see them that much on the news. But the fact that you don't look at something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And then I think about this refugee woman, Sirkit, who was um, a witness to the car accident when the Israeli doctor uh, killed the Eritrean refugee. And because she witnessed it, because she was the eyewitness, this gives her the power over this Israeli doctor. And suddenly she can force him to look and to see all those areas that he usually avoids seeing. So very much, I, I agree with you, I think Waking Lines is a, a novel about seeing and about the things we don't want to see. What do you want readers to feel as they're reading it and then again after they've finished reading it? I think while a person is reading a story, when I read a novel, I don't want to think. I, I want to feel it. I want to be there completely. And I want to ask myself not even the moral questions. I don't just want to, you know, lose myself inside of a novel. But then when I get out of a novel as, as a reader... I want to have like something bigger than the novel itself to, to walk with. And for me, the question in the end of Waking Lines is, if it would happen to the reader driving back home late at night and accidentally hitting somebody who doesn't look like the reader, he's from a different race, from a different nationality, and if the reader is absolutely sure that nobody would see him, is he not, like, does he know for certain that he wouldn't be capable of living this man in the side of the road? 
So for me, that was the biggest question. And it's a question that I'm sure everyone listening will say, oh, no, there's no way. I would definitely stop. I wouldn't. But in the end, you really wouldn't know until you're in that situation, which is exactly what happens to this Israeli doctor. Exactly, because, you know, when we think about it in advance, we always have the the right answer and we always give the right answer. But then again, the answers that you give while you're listening to the radio and like in, in daytime is not necessarily the answer that you will give if it's the middle of the night and you want to go back to your children and you're afraid for your career and for your family. So I don't think we never know exactly what we're capable of until the moment we face a decision. Let's put a bookmark there. We've got a pretty fun lineup next week, but you know my rule, no spoilers. That being said, keep an eye on our Twitter and Instagram feeds at WCBS 880 Books for a hint or two. And if you'd like to get in touch, feel free to email me at lisat at wcbs880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at wcbs880.com.